Hello and welcome to We Are History, the less than serious history podcast. Angela's laughing at my useless introduction timing. We have to clap and count down and I just forgot to clap. I think just... I think our listeners are now aware because we fuck it up so often. <laughs> it's a lot to think about. <laughs> it is, John. It is sort of multitasking oh, in a oh, way, isn't is a, it? That is a lot, a lot. I mean, just counting down backwards from five is a challenge for me. <laughs> Today on wearehistory.pod.com.net, we're going back to the Second World War. We and are. Angela's going to lead on this one. Uh, I am. This is, she's read the book and everything. Today, we are going to be talking about something called Operation Mincemeat, um, which, John, is not about my challenges to find the ingredients for mince pies outside the Christmas season. Yeah. Every week we do this sort of like, whoa, tell the listeners what we're listening. It's written on the podcast. Everyone knows what we're talking yeah, about. It's, it's, like, it's, it's like, not a surprise, oh, is it? It's big reveal, Guess everyone. What's coming, guys. Oh, yeah, no, we've already, A, it's the title, and B, and it's, uh, we've tweeted described. about it. And it's so, described. So, yeah, yeah. amazing surprise. Anyway, it's, you know what we're talking about. But they don't know all the detail about it, Angela. And this is a no. very, very quirky plan for the Second World War that it you're going to tell a... us all about this week. I am. It's a slightly deranged World War II operation, John. And I'll tell you what it involves. Um, it involves a corpse being washed up carrying strategic documents to be found by the enemy and it is an operation that it could be said helped change the course of the war so it's an important operation they do like they never never go well it made a bit of difference but it actually did fuck all (laughs) but um no they never say that i've sworn twice already john we haven't even started yet terrible so where are we talking about operation meets meet takes place in 1943 so okay um, we're getting towards the, the end of the war. Um, in November 1942, the British Eighth Army have vanquished Rommel's Africa Corps. Yes, right? and they've, they've done it. They've, uh, El Alamein's happened. The Allies uh. control the coast of North Africa now from Casablanca to Alexandria. And the next move on yeah. uh, the Allies list is to attack what Churchill called Europe's soft underbelly. Right, it's so they're now underbelly. <laughs> Quite good, wasn't it? This is actually something he did in World War One, wasn't it? When it was a disaster mm. and he attacked Gallipoli, um, mm. and um, so he thought the same thing again. Of I think he was so uh, influenced by the campaign of Wellington in Spain against Napoleon that he really was convinced that the soft underbelly was the way to change the course of the war. What that meant, in real yes. terms, is either attacking mm-hmm. Sicily to allow the invasion of continental Europe through Italy, yes. which obviously is an Axis power at that yes. time. Yes. Or to go via Greece to the Balkans, where they can trap the German forces on the Eastern Front, sort of, yes. between, sort of between the British and American invaders and the Soviets. Yes. So they had these two options. And at the Casablanca conference in January 1943, the planners decided that they're going to invade Sicily. That's the Casablanca the conference. Was that held the in Casablanca Rick's bar? That's right, it was. <laughs> in all the bars and all the joints in all the world, you had to walk into mine. What was Stalin's? What was Stalin's bogey impression like? I want to... Well, Sicily was so close. If you look on the map, it's so close to Tunisia and the yeah. narrowest crossing. And it was bleeding obvious it was going to be Sicily. So they had to do something, yeah. didn't they? Well, exactly. So the operation to invade Sicily is called Operation Husky um, okay. because people from Sicily have famously gravelly voices, I think. Um, and it was the obvious choice. And, and this is a problem, right? Because if it's an obvious choice to the Allies, it's going to be obvious yes. to the Germans, right? So... The Allies have to make Germany believe that their intention is not to attack Sicily at all. How are they going to do that, Angela? Well, John, deception is obviously a huge part of wartime strategy, right? Half the battle is making your opponent think you're going to do something other than what you're actually going to do. And there's a whole department dedicated to plans of deception. Um, And this department is called the London Controlling Station, which is nice and vague. It's not very glamorous, is it? It's not very glamorous, but they can't really call it the Department for Hoodwinking the Germans, can they? It's a bit of a a giveaway. It was a trick of itself. They'll give it such a sort of dull name. I'm going off to the London Controlling Station, dear. Sort of place that John Major would work. Impressions are pouring out today. I've done Churchill, Bogey, John Major. I'm on fire today. You are, John. Are you auditioning for something? Yeah, no, I'm hoping to be the new Rory guys. Now, the London Controlling Station is headed by one Johnny Bevan, who's an old Etonian. We're sort of entering this world that I love now of posh blokes in intelligence. 
I don't know why I love it, but I Absolutely. do. So um, Johnny Bevan is in charge of what's called Operation Barclay, and that is specifically the operation of deception to try and get the Germans to think they are definitely not going to invade Sicily. Right, OK. So this is where the idea for Operation Mincemeat comes about. Now, okay. we go back to the beginning of the war. 1939, there's a man called Admiral John Godfrey, and he's the director of naval intelligence. And he sends out, he circulates a memo, which becomes really famous. It's called the Trout Memo. And he writes it, John, with his PA. Okay. Do you know who his PA is, John? His PA was Ian Fleming, the famous or future author, James Bond and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So their idea was to put a flying car over Sicily with the children to catch the child catcher. There is a a thesis to be written on the amount of people intelligence that end up as novelists, because it's pretty much all of them end up as... I suppose because what they do was so mad and so novelistic. Anyway. So Ian Fleming, so they reckon this was uh, this memo, though it was uh, credited to Admiral John Godfrey. The bloke working for him was Ian Fleming, and uh, he said this mission should be shaken, not stirred. That's right. It's called the Trout Memo because it compared the deception of an enemy in water time with fly fishing he writes in the memo the trout fisher casts patiently all day and he frequently changes his venue and his lures and the memo goes on to list 54 ways that the enemy <laughs> like <laughs> trout 54 ways to leave <laughs> your lover 54 um, ways that the enemy is like a trout the trout, enemy yeah. swims upstream and lays his eggs in gravel no john <laughs> it's 54 ways that the enemy can be fooled so suggestion number 28 in the trout memo Right. Is is titled a suggestion brackets not a very nice one close brackets okay. and it's based on a novel by someone called Basil Thompson who mm-hmm. interestingly ex prison officer and also interrogator of Matahari that's we don't have time for that right. so this is what's written in the Trout memo this uh, suggestion is that a corpse dressed as an airman with dispatches yes. in his pockets could be dropped on the coast supposedly from a parachute that's failed ah. says, I understand. There's no difficulty in obtaining corpses at the naval hospital, but of course it would have to be a fresh one. Now, this idea of planting fake documents for an enemy to find is nothing new, and it's called the Haversack ruse because there was an incident in World War One in Gaza uh, oh. where a British spy took a bag with false documents in, he smeared it in horse blood, rode out into no man's land until they started shooting at him, at which point he slumped forward, deliberately dropped the bag, and then rushed back behind... British enemy lines. And then they started a fake sort of frantic search for the bag so that the enemy thought there's something important in that bag. Right, wow. So you would have thought the Germans were looking out for this a little bit. Yeah. So you've got to make it convincing, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And they would have been doing the same thing. You know, deception, like I say, big part of war. Remember our um, Spy Pigeons episode, Angela? Exactly, yes. Germans were sending back pigeons with false information. Yeah. Do listen. It's a good one. There was another precedent to this, which wasn't a ruse at all. A seaplane had crashed off the coast of Cadiz in Spain. Um, And Cadiz is said to be a bit of a hotbed of German spies. Oh, you mean Cadiz? Cadiz. So we'll come back to Spain in a second. But everyone in this crash was killed, including Paymaster Lieutenant James Haddon Turner. Okay. Um, Now, he was a courier who was carrying these top secret documents and there was also a French agent who was a special operations executive blimey high risk both their bodies got recovered and both of them had documents with sensitive information and it turned out that the English lieutenant his documents weren't passed on to the Germans but the French guys were so Spain of course at this point was officially neutral in World War Two. technically but they're a bunch of fascists weren't they because we did another podcast about that as well the Spanish Civil War Franco he was a bit of a Nazi as well, let's be honest. <laughs> Sorry, that went down the wrong way. <coughs> you're right there, Angela, you're coughing. Yeah, it sounds like I'm coughing at Franco being Don't a Nazi. Be a Nazi. You're so shocked. Nazi. I thought he was one of the nice guys. Not Uncle Frank. So it was a clever way of doing it, really, because if you sort of drop a British airman full of documents, you know, in Berlin, it's like, well, that's obviously trying a bit too mm. hard. But to give it to an officially neutral country where you thought they would break their neutrality by giving the secrets to the Germans, that was a clever way of making the Germans think it was an accident. Absolutely. I mean, it had risks because... Yeah. Not everyone in Spain is pro-fascist, oh. as we know from the Spanish Civil War episode. Yeah. So, you know, they had to ensure that these papers got into the hands of people that would pass them on to Germans. So now let's go into this lovely world of British intelligence that I've got a bit of a soft spot for. And I'm going to introduce you to the two main players in this, John. 
Yes. First of all, you had Charles Christopher Chumley. Chumley. Chumley is six foot three. He's got thick glasses. You see pictures of him. He's really gangly. He's all arms and legs and a bit awkward. And he sort of, he would have loved to be a flying ace in the RAF, the sort of same way that you'd love to play for Fulham, John. It was never going to happen. What do you mean? I still may yet. I may yet. (laughs) He was a flight lieutenant in RAF intelligence and he'd been seconded to MI5 during the war. They always have names, don't they? Like, that are spelled differently to how it's pronounced. It's like Farquharson and sort of... Oh, yeah. Chumley is spelled C-H-O-L-M-O-N-D-L-E-Y. But it's Chumley. I bet he went to Magdalen College, you know. It's that sort of thing, isn't it? So they could correct you. Mr. Cholmondley, can we have a Mr. Cholmondley, please? Uh, it's Chumley, actually. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, do, do, do continue. A <laughs> so, particular bug by of mine about posh pronunciations. <laughs> so he's now working for MI5 and he is the secretary of the Top Secret 20 Committee. Now, the 20 Committee, John, written down, it is the XX Committee. Oh, they're still speaking Latin back then. This is a long they're time ago, They're still speaking Latin. So it's Roman numerals, obviously, for 20. Uh, but it was a pun, you see, John, because the XX stood for double cross. I'm not laughing, Angela. You're not laughing. OK, fine. It wasn't the best joke, but, you know, they tried. Oh, that's very clever. It was times. Clever. It was wartime. X, X, um, X is double cross, so we got a 20 committee. Yeah, yeah. Try, try closing the comedy store with that gag. We'll see how you get on. <laughs> the job of the 20 committee was to coordinate the intelligence they got from B1A. Now, it gets all confusing with these intelligence departments, so don't right. worry about it. But B1A was a department that ran captured German spies. So when okay. German spies were captured in Britain, they would either be imprisoned or they would be used as double agents and yeah. would be used to pass misinformation back to the enemy. Right. And the job of the 20 committee was to sort of coordinate the intelligence that these double agents were providing them with. In October 1942, so this is just after this dead bloke's washed up in Cadiz and they've realised that Spanish agents might pass yeah. documents on to the Germans. Chumley presents to the 20 committee this plan called the Trojan Horse. His plan is, he says, a body is obtained from one of the London hospitals. Normal peacetime price, £10, apparently. Okay. It would be dressed in a uniform of suitable rank, lungs filled with water and documents put in inside pocket, and the body would be dropped by coastal command aircraft at a position where currents will wash it ashore in enemy territory. Wow. And, of course, this is a good plan in some ways because what a dead body can't do is get tortured or be turned as a double agent, right? So John Masterman is the chair of the 2020 committee. He so thinks John, this is John a brilliant who? idea. John Masterman. John Masterman. So his chair, has he got a big black chair? Dun, Prob- dun, dun, dun. Oh, dear. I've got, to, got to do the gags, Angela. <laughs> that is your job, John. John Masterman. Okay. So he's the chair of the 20 committee and he thinks it's a great plan, right? And he yeah. thinks... Operation Barclays happening, this operation to deceive the Germans about Sicily. Let's use this plan in it. Now, because in the plan, the corpse is uh, planned to arrive by sea, it'll be under naval control, this operation. And the representative of naval intelligence on the 20 committee is a dashing chap called the Honourable Ewan Montague. Wow, another great name. A brilliant name. He is probably the most important person in this story. He is a really well-renowned lawyer, relishes fighting authority, that sort of lawyer. Right. Uh, he's from a rich Jewish banking family. His father was a peer, Baron Swedling. Baron Swedling and yep. Chom- Chomley and Montague. Uh, absolutely. No one has names like that anymore. You don't, <laughs> you don't <laughs> no, go down the pub and go, so this is Baron Swedling, this is yeah. you and Montague, this is Chomley. <laughs> Well, not in the pubs we go to, John. No, no. maybe, maybe. <laughs> if you go to a gentleman's club in Mayfair, possibly. I suppose so. Interestingly, and this is a little side note, uh, his brother, Ewan Montague's brother, was Ivor Montague, um, who was a communist filmmaker and tennis table champion and Soviet spy. But that's oh, another blimey. story. They have such interesting yeah. jobs, don't they? Another little interesting aside, Ewan and his brother Ivor played table tennis together and they, in fact, came up with the name table tennis for oh. ping pong. Yeah, okay. there you go. So you've got this dashing chat. I imagine he smokes a pipe and sounds like Leslie Phillips. That's I'm sure you're right. He's a married man, but his wife has gone to America with the children because they're from a Jewish family. And so if right. Britain was invaded, which it was likely, they wouldn't have fared very well under the Nazis. And he was really good at his job in naval intelligence. And he rose up the ranks and eventually had his own subsection of the department, which was called Section 17M. 
for Montague. Ah. I should say, by the way, the book I've read on this is Ben McIntyre's book called Operation Mincemeat. Do read it because it is full of twists and turns and tangents that we haven't got time for and it reads like a brilliant novel. So, the plan. It's decided that they would get a body. Yeah. They would transport it to waters where it would wash ashore in southern Spain. Pedalos. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> they also decided on Spain, not just because it was likely to get passed on to the Germans, but because they were British, they just assumed that Spanish doctors wouldn't be very good at doing post-mortems. Um, they were wrong in that, but that's what they assumed. I suppose they thought that with Spain being neutral, they wouldn't have been as rigorous as Germans who were determined to find out for their war effort whether mm. or not this was a genuine airman. I suppose that might have mm. been thinking, but or maybe they just thought yeah. they were uh, Southern European lazy types. Well, it, I mean, there. there was a... We'll, we'll come on to it in a minute, but there was a pathologist who was very much that Spanish doctors aren't up to it. They're not as good as us. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, and so they would never do as good an autopsy as we would do. Like they can't make a decent cup of tea in Spain. You know, that sort of Brexity right. thinking. Okay. First things first though, John, what yeah. do you need to do for this operation? A corpse. A corpse, right? And you'd think wartime, got to be ten a penny. Yeah. Turns out Chumley was wrong. You couldn't get one off the shelf for tenner. Well, I suppose you've got every family that's lost somebody. You'd have to consult them and ask them and then they might talk. So they might be proud and want to say so. Even in wartime, every corpse has to be accounted for. Yeah. And the corpse needed to meet certain requirements. So it had to be a male body of military age. It had to have no obvious injuries or infirmities, apart from the infirmity of being dead. That is a Um, big one. Which is a big one because it had to look like it had drowned, right? So you couldn't have it with a big stab wound in the back. Oh, yeah, that's, I gonna... that's true. So you've got to have it, it's got to have died of something not drowning, but. Uh, but yeah. something that could be disguised as drowning. This is where they consult this senior Home Office pathologist. He's called Sir Bernard Spilsbury. You're making uh, these who... names up now, Angela. <laughs> Sir Bernard Spilsbury. Oh. John, you wait for what's coming up next, mate. It gets so much better, the names. Okay. Um, so Bernard Spilsbury was famous uh, for identifying the remains in Dr. Crippin's cellar. And his verdict was that they should find a drowned man and float him ashore in a life jacket. Oh, yeah. Well, you do that then, mate. That's your idea. You do that. You organise that then and I'll uh, I'll do the Christmas rotor. <laughs> well, they, they toyed with the idea of doing, as they called it, doing a Birkin hare, oh, uh, i.e. grave robbing. No, Birkin hare ended up killing people, didn't they? So, well, they did uh, in the end, yeah. yeah. I think they, they meant they'd grave right. rob rather okay. than that they'd okay. actually okay. go that far but eventually they approached the coroner of St Pancras who was a man that Ewan Montague was acquainted with and his name John was the best name in the book his name was Bentley Purchase <laughs> that's brilliant Bentley Purchase, which I think makes him the opposite of Nick Ferrari. Oh, very good. See very what good. I've done there? Oh, Bentley, not Bentley, Bentley Purchase, Ferrari. but Nick Ferrari. Oh, Nick Ferrari. No. So Bentley, Bentley Purchase, Purchase um, he's, he's sort of a jolly uh, coroner. Apparently he was very funny, had a sense of humour. When he would give people directions to the coroner's court, he would always add at the bottom, an alternative means of getting here, of course, is to get run over. Again, again, it's not closing the store. He's been known, old Bentley Purchase, to help intelligence services in the past. Like, for example, when an Abwehr, Abwehr is the German intelligence right. uh, service, when an Abwehr spy killed himself in London by sticking his head in an oven, Purchase gave the verdict on the death certificate as a heart attack okay. and things like that. So he's done bits and bobs of slightly uh, underhand okay. things. So he agrees to give Montague a tour of the mortuary, see if there's anything suitable oh. in stock. We'd like to have a look at our range, sir. Pulling out the drawers, this might suit you, sir. This is a, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a, a, a dead old lady who lost her head in a tram accident. No, that's not really what I'm mm. looking for. Who did they get? Who is the hero of this story? This is the saddest bit of the story. Oh. His name was Glyndor Michael. He was a Welshman. Right. Uh, and it's pretty fair to say, John, he had a shit life. Oh, a really shit Glyndor. life. He was born in 1909 in the Welsh colliery town of Aberbargoid. Okay, well, it's pronounced. Thank you. I did you see? I wrote it phonetically <laughs> in my notes. There. Very good. Uh, I had to Google how to pronounce that. But you do your research. Boy. Credit to you. You do your research, yeah. Angela. His mother was illiterate. She'd been married twice. His father, her second husband, was a Welsh Baptist coal miner who had syphilis. He'd passed syphilis onto his wife, and Glyndor was likely born with congenital syphilis, uh, which gave him a lot of problems. He had what we would now call learning difficulties. He certainly had mental health problems. Yeah. 
His father was physically very ill from working down mines and was also mentally ill from the syphilis. His father tried to stab himself in the neck once. I think his mother took her own life as well, I think. I don't know if she took her own life or if she died of a stroke. Right. But um, certainly after his father died, the family were destitute. They lived on handouts. Yeah. His sisters and brother, they moved away and had families of their own. So it's just him. He wasn't well enough to work properly. His mother died in 1940, lost the only emotional support he had. So he was homeless, destitute, mentally ill and a country at war that didn't care. Poor Glendrea. But he's going to serve his country in a way he can never imagine. He is. So it's not clear when he came to London. At some point he came to London. Bentley Purchase said yeah. that quite often people came to London to die because they thought their death would go unnoticed and they could just sort of oh, blend in in London. So quite often people came to London with the intention of killing themselves. We don't think that was the case with Glinda Michael. He stayed in London in common lodging houses in 1942, but he also was sleeping rough and he spent some time in what was then called a lunatic asylum. Okay. And on the 26th of January 1943, they found his body. Uh, oh. He'd ingested rat poison. It was okay. assumed he took it deliberately, but there's also a chance that he... Remember, this man is, you know, he has learning difficulties. He's not... And he was hungry. Yeah, and there's I mean, a chance I, that he ate some rotting leftover food that was Yeah, I, I read that he um, ate some bread that had this rat poison paste spread on it. Mm. So it might have been a suicide, but it might have mm. just been a really unfortunate and horrible way to die. But a way to die, because it's phosphorus poisoning, so yes, it's slow right. and it's, it's, it takes you a few mm. days, but it's not that detectable. Is that right? Is that why it was quite a useful death for the security exactly. services? It took him two days to die. It's a slow death. Yeah. phosphorus poisoning with a horrible bit in the middle where apparently you feel fine which oh, no. is quite sad isn't it and then your and organs fail and, yeah. and that's that he was 34 unloved not missed and when he arrived at St Pancras Morgue all the posh people are like splendid what excellent news hurrah Bentley Purchase yeah he phones up Ewan Montague and says I think your candidates arrived and they kept him in cold storage until they were ready for him. Purchase did a swift inquest. There'd usually be an autopsy in a poisoning case, but obviously they didn't bother here. Uh, he was just listed as a lunatic labourer of no fixed abode. I mean, it's not what you want on your on your gravestone, is it, really? It's not, is it? Um, and like you say, John, phosphorus is not readily traceable after a period of time, unlike other poisons. Yeah. Um, and there were signs, like yellowed skin and gastric burns, but they were harder to pick up. Uh, and the yellowed skin could be explained away just by decomposition or whatever. Okay. So they've got their body, John. They've got their corpse, but time's now of the essence because this body is starting to do what bodies do. It's starting to rot. Oh, no. And they can't freeze it. Because if they freeze it and then thaw it out for the operation, the freezing's going to have show. damaged all the soft tissue, so that's going to show. Right. So they keep it in a fridge at the morgue uh, at four degrees. Move the, move the oven chips. Yeah, that's move it. The, get your yogurt out, out of the way. Out of the way, yeah. And, um, it's less food then because of rationing, <laughs> so I suppose there was room in the fridge. <laughs> and Purchase said this body needs to be used within three months. Oh, ideally. that's just health and safety thing. You don't take any notice of those days. <laughs> <laughs> So a week after his death, um, Chumley and Montague, they present a draft of what is now called Operation Mincemeat to the 20 committee and it's agreed that they should try and go ahead. Yeah, I read that the, the name Mincemeat was just taken off a list of names for operations. Somebody's job was to sit down and write in, what else can we call an operation? Oper you know, Operation yeah. Thursday, Operation well, there was I strict, Love Janet. Strict rules on code names. Because yeah. Churchill said you, you had to make sure there was nothing too sort of fluffy or nice because you didn't want to be, oh, my husband died in Operation Bunny oh. Hop or whatever, you know. Operation um, I Really Fancy Janet from Accounts. That yeah, would have been, yeah. That would have given away too much information. <laughs> yeah, so code names were selected from a list, but um, you and Montague selected mincemeat because he thought it was um, close to dead meat. It's a bit grim, is isn't it? Grim. It's, yeah. it's like the human I cause, mincemeat. When, you know, we're, I, when I read this, I have nothing but sort of sadness about this poor man who, yeah. but we have to remember they're in wartime intelligence and it's tough right and yeah. they're trying they're to win a war yeah. so they're there's, just getting on with it and they're bigger things at stake Angela you can't get all emotional about Glindy here right. we've got yeah. a war to win come on exactly pull yourself together so um, the corpse needs a backstory right oh, yes. it can't just float the corpse it needs to be good because the Germans aren't just going to go oh yeah he looks like a, a naval so officer we'll accept that they're going to they're going to check up on So they need some writers. This is bring on the writers. Bring this is on what I would the have been writers. doing. I would have been creating backstory, motives, <laughs> uh, a love well, life. I think, I think, John, you and, you and Ewan Montague would have gotten very well. I think yeah. you would have enjoyed his part in this, which goes insane in a little while, but we'll come okay. on to that. So the corpse needs a backstory. It needs to be good. So they choose the name 
for um, the corpse, as we'll call him, they choose Captain Acting Major William Martin. So it's Major Bill Martin of the okay. Royal Marines. Um, they choose the name Martin because when they looked at the Royal Marines register, there were lots of Martins of that rank. The other reason they decided he should be a Royal Marine is that they wear battle dress when travelling and it would be easy for them to come by in okay. uniform. Right, right. Um, and the Acting Major rank meant that he was senior enough to be carrying the messages, but not so senior that the Germans would expect to know him. So much to think about. I mean. yeah. So much to think about. And, and I mean, I'm leaving a lot out of this. Yeah. Read the book, because there's a lot more detail. To reinforce the backstory, the team have to produce what in intelligence circles is known as wallet litter or pocket litter. Okay. And that's the stuff that, you know, it would be weird if a body floated up and all it had on it was these important documents and nothing else. Yes. You know, because we all carry shit with us all the time. You yes. know? So they concocted this whole story around him. Um, there was a, a woman called Jean Leslie who worked in room 13 uh, with Montague. And um, they put a photograph of her in the wallet as Pam who was Bill's fiance, right? Oh. And um, in the picture, she's been swimming. So it was like a swimsuit shot, which was quite saucy for the time. So somebody um, had to go up to Jean in the office and go, could we have a picture of you in your swimsuit, please, young lady? Well, she actually supplied it. They basically asked all the women, can you right. give us some photographs? I bet of they did. I bet they did. Use? Yeah, not all of them in swimsuits. And all the women that worked in room 13 were beautiful because that was part of their recruitment strategy. Because, oh, God, um, okay. Uncle John Godfrey, who was the head of uh, naval yeah. intelligence, he said that beautiful women were less likely to boast to their boyfriends about what they were doing. Yeah, he just wanted some totty around, didn't he? Right, let's, let's exactly. <laughs> exactly. So in order to get this wallet litter, the team at Room 13, they had a bit of a fun time. They would go to nightclubs, go to bars, so they could get receipts for the things to put it's in the wallet. It's for the war wallet, effort, sir. Right? It's for the war effort. We, we, exactly. we employ pretty girls, we go to nightclubs. It's all part of our intelligence gathering service. Exactly. They also um, wrote love letters. There were two love letters in there from Pam. Oh, God. So did Montague write these letters? Uh, yes. So he um, had to pretend to be a woman, right? Well, a... it gets weirder. Okay. So Jean Leslie is this woman who is now Pam. Yeah. And Ewan Montague plays the part of Bill in the yeah. letters that they write to each other. Um, but they start actually going out together on dates as Bill and Pam. Okay. And it becomes this... Remember, he's married, but his wife yeah. has now been in America. He hasn't seen his wife for about three years. And it's never actually said that they were having a sexual okay, but affair. but they start to call each other Bill and Pam and everything. They start to call each other Bill and Pam. And they, they are still writing to each other as Bill and Pam nearly five decades after the war has ended. Okay, there's something going on there, Angela. Um, his mother, Lady Swaithling, wrote to his wife in America saying, I'm a bit... You want to keep an eye on your husband. I think he's getting a bit close to this woman in his office i'd love to read the letter from gene though you can read them in the book they're in the book and um they were they sort of had a bit too much fun with it okay in that in places it came a bit too close to being like oh come on because she would have she wrote in this really melodramatic way pam which was sort of fashionable at the time you know like romance novels and things. yes but she would write things like i've got such a foreboding feeling that i won't see you again it's like don't write that you might say, i hope just, you don't crash in your plane game, off spain that would be you awful know, oh that would be terrible they also put in a letter from martin's pompous father and they created this backstory that he owed the bank loads of money and so that his father good, was angry good. with him and things like that if he's in the water would you not be able to read these bloody letters anyway? well so montague has thought of this right ah, the ink no. gets washed away in the water so he got some mi5 scientists to conduct tests on different types of ink to see which lasted longer in the water that's the less glamorous bit so one load of them had to go to nightclubs that's our job you yep. are down in uh, the end of the corridor. Your guy is to go to the bogs with uh, salt water and just put <laughs> ink in the sink. That's your exactly. job for the week. <laughs> exactly. They needed the items in the wallet litter as well, had a function of not just being there to be there, but also to construct a bit of an itinerary for him. Yeah. So on the 22nd of April, there was a famous comedian at the time called Sid Field who yeah. was playing in London. He was touring at the time. He was playing in London on the 22nd of April. And his support act, you know who his support act was? Tell me. A young Morecambe and Wise. Oh, God, how old were they squad. back then? They would have been 16, 17. They were playing. Like they were playing. So that Morecambe and Wise have, have a little walk-on part in this amazing story. They, they do. The comics I watched as a kid, they were sort of attached to this story of wartime subterfuge and exactly. spies. It's amazing. Wow. So Ewan uh, Montague and Pam, not Pam, Jean, and Chumley and someone else, I think one of the other women from the office, he buys four tickets for this show. 
Okay. And they all go to the show, actually, of on they the night. Do. But in the meantime, so he buys them in advance because we're still, you know, we're not in April yet because they need it to look like he'd been in London on the 22nd of April. Right. And other things, there's like a book of stamps, Silver Cross, St. Christopher's medallion, cigarettes, matches, pencil stub keys, and a receipt from Geeves? Jeeves? I don't, I don't know, know, from but a new the shirt. The cross, I think, the, the Silver Cross was to make him a Catholic, and yes. they thought his body would be treated with more reverence by the Spanish if he was a Catholic. Yeah, and they'd be less likely to do a full autopsy right? if he was Catholic in a Catholic country. Good thinking. The other thing they needed was an ID card. Okay. Um, Now, it's pretty tricky, John, to take a photo of a corpse's face and make it look like it isn't dead. Can't say I've ever tried. So they tried, but obviously it was just a photo of a dead man. Yeah. Um, So they had to find someone. So they did a search and there was a Captain Ronnie Reed of MI5 who apparently was a spitting image for the corpse, which I'm not sure how how you tell someone that. Right. But he was. And uh, he agreed to be photographed for the ID card wearing a Royal Marine uniform. Despite having a normal name. That could be you, a builder, couldn't he's it? He's a snooker player, isn't it? It's like, what are you doing in this story? Your name isn't Sir Montague Ch- Ch- Chobley Farquharson. You should get out of this story immediately. So actually, several ID cards were made and it was up to the submarine captain at the end of the day to choose which one to put on the body at the time. Okay, okay. But uh, Montague would carry them in his wallet and would occasionally rub them on his trousers to try and make them look nice and worn oh yeah um, didn't he wear the uniform as well Chumley that was Chumley who did because Chumley was six foot three as was yeah. Glendur so he would wear the uniform around the place to make it look worn in uh, well, it's a bit creepy isn't it I'm wearing the clothes that a dead man's going to be dumped in mm, yeah. yeah but again wartime John wartime got to do different it different roles now the important thing that this corpse is going to yeah. be carrying are the deception documents right yes. so yes, absolutely and this is where it gets really tricky because it's not just a case of going, let's just put some wartime plans in his briefcase because the Germans would know if a man of his rank was carrying something he shouldn't be carrying. So the deception is, and the Operation Barclays whole deception, was that they would make it look like their plans were to attack the Balkans via Greece yep. and that Sicily was a cover. Right oh, now, okay. because in reality they were attacking Sicily, yeah. they needed a reason for stuff going on there. Stuff so that going on thought, there oh, as that's well. Just a, that's just a foolish. I've got the yeah. letter. So when they were actually building up to attack Sicily, they made the yeah. Germans think that that was just their decoy. Yeah, yeah. So they could because because they would get other intelligence information. So they wrote a letter saying we're definitely definitely attacking Greece and not Sicily. Honest. Honest Gov. In German. Signed, signed a, uh, a... A real person. Signed a, a real, real person. person. <laughs> this is sophisticated so, stuff. So the other thing they decided was it should be unofficial correspondence because he wouldn't be carrying official right, correspondence. Right, official right. correspondence would have been in a diplomatic bag or encrypted yeah. signal. So um, they didn't want the Germans to question why he was carrying it. Yeah. So the main deception document was a, a personal letter from Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Nye, who was the Vice Chief of the Imperial General Staff. Right. And he was writing a letter to General Sir Harold Alexander, who was the commander of the Anglo-American 18th Army Group in Algeria and Tunisia under Eisenhower. Because obviously they're all in North Africa and they've just won the North African campaign and that's where they're launching the attack on Sicily from. But drafting these letters, John, reading about the drafting of these letters reminded me of trying to get a sitcom made where <laughs> there were just too many people looking at it and, and, re- and with their own their ideas of what it should be uh, yes. and giving and what, you conflicting my, notes. Oh, what a nightmare. I've been there. God, yeah. Uh, we've all been there. Oh, um, notes from the production company, yeah. notes from the uh, BBC comedy, notes from the head of BBC. That's before you even get the actor saying, I don't think my character would do this. So, you know, as a writer, that everyone's yeah. got their own ideas of what should go in it. And ultimately, when you try and incorporate everyone's ideas, it Doesn't work. ruins it. And, and Johnny Bevan, who's the head of Operation Barclay, and Montague, who's heading up Operation Mincemeat, they don't get on very well. Oh, right? no. So Johnny Bevan is, is anything he can do to criticise what they're doing. He will. So he's making their job quite difficult. So in the end, what they did, they got Nye, who was the person who allegedly had written the letter, to actually write it. So it would he they brought him in on it oh, to a good. certain extent and got him to write it. So they knew it would be in his voice and it would be the sort of things that he would say because so he was could, writing if it. If they had any other, if their spies had had anything else from him, they'd recognise the style as being consistent as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, good, good, good um, like So he wrote this letter um, and the most important part was we have recent information that the Bosch have been reinforcing and strengthening their defences in Greece and Crete 
And CIGS felt that that's the chief of the Imperial General Staff. And that, felt that kept, Alf- your, kept your accent for that. That was good. The brackets. Yes. Your, yes. Chief, that's Hugo. the chief of the Imperial General Staff. Sorry, do continue, uh, Angela. Felt that our forces for the assault were insufficient. It was agreed by the chiefs of staff that the 5th Division should be reinforced by one brigade group for the assault on the beach south of Cape Araxos, i.e. Greece, yeah. and that a similar reinforcement should be made for the 56th Division at Kalamata. Are yeah, and the Greece? Germans reading this going, oh, 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 hang on, hang on. This hang on a minute, that's Sicilian. not Sicily. I've uh, been to Sicily. That's, there's nothing, no X's that's, in their place. Yeah. yeah. The second deception document he carried was a letter from Vice Admiral Louis Mountbatten, old um, yeah. uh, cousin of the Queen, because he was the commander of the Royal Marines, so he would have been the commanding officer of the corps. Um, and it was a letter to the Admiral of the Fleet, Sir Andrew Cunningham, who was the Allied Naval Commander in the Mediterranean. Martin's cover was, that's the corpse, uh, was referred to in the letter as an amphibious warfare expert on loan until the assault is over. Ah. So it's Mountbatten is sending him there with the documents and to be an expert in the field. Okay. Also in the letter, which has been written by Montague, this one, signed by Montgomery, but Montague wrote it. And in it, he put a clumsy joke about sardines. I can't remember what it was, something like, oh, I hope you bring some sardines back with you, in the hope that the Germans would read that as a hint that they were also going to launch an attack on Sardinia. When they'd finished laughing about the sardines. When they'd finished laughing at the hilarious sardines joke. In the letter, uh, the deception documents, they also placed a single black eyelash. um, So that when the letters were returned... They'd be able to tell if they'd been read or not. This has got to be an Ian Fleming touch. That's got to be, because in Bond, there's actually a thing where he, he has a, a a single hair he puts in a door or something or in a mm. wardrobe. And he well, I think it was a gone. common thing because Fleming's it? not involved in mincemeat at all. I know, but I just want to make but it you, more glamorous. I know, you, I know it's more glamorous that way. So now it's what to do with the documents. The original plan was they'd slide the documents into his pockets. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is because of this Roman Catholic aversion to tampering with corpses, which is good in terms of it means they might not do a full autopsy, it's not good if they don't search him at all because then they're never going to find the documents, right? And they could be missed. So they decide instead he should carry them in an official briefcase. Okay. Wasn't he going to drop that? Two problems with that. One is why would you have a briefcase with just two letters in? That's going to oh, look yeah. dodgy. So they had to find other stuff to fill the briefcase up with. So they filled it up with some copies of pamphlets and some other letters and bits and bobs. Waterways World magazine. Is that yeah, just Yeah, that's right. That's just you, John. <laughs> um, but also, as you say, with a briefcase, you can't rely on rigor mortis to keep the briefcase attached no, to the corpse. Not. So what they did, they um, attached it with a leather-covered chain, like, um, like a bank and jewellery Couriers yeah, might okay, use. To, okay. That know. sounds a bit dodgy to me. I think I'd be a bit suspicious if I saw that attached to his arm. Well, were... yes and no. I mean, it, you know, he is carrying sensitive information, so it might make sense. It, what Montague did think was unlikely that if he'd been on a plane, which the idea is he's, you know, been in a plane crash, that he's unlikely to have stayed chained to the briefcase on the right. plane. Okay. So they just changed it to his overcoat. Okay. Yeah, all right. I'll go with it. I'll go with it. I'll go with it. Yeah, there's several things, John. That in this, you think, how did they not pick up on that? But I yeah, think yeah. you have to remember that also the the Germans are quite paranoid at this stage in the war and they want this information to be accurate True. because they want to be able to act on it, you know. I got it. But I, got um, it. I think we'll take a little break now while the plan's being finalised. Are we only at half time? We're only at half time, John, and you're going to go and make a Bentley purchase, aren't you? <laughs> My name is Purchase. Bentley Purchase. Hello and welcome back to part two of We Are History. We have this oh. running battle. We have this running battle. I'm going, Angela, your plan is longer than war and peace. <laughs> it's, it's like... But I think listeners don't mind if it's over an hour long, if it's interesting, uh, right? It's, right, okay. Well, and I uh, think this is interesting. Is Honestly, interesting. John, I've... if you read the book that I read, Ben McIntyre's yeah. Operation yeah. Mincemeat, it would be so, there's so much fascinating stuff in there that I've had to leave out. No, I just don't think the podcast should be longer than the war it's talking about. <laughs> But at least people will, will be able to tell by the legs of the podcast which ones I've researched and which ones you've yeah, researched. Sure. Mine are like, yeah, back of a bag packet, scribble down the key points. Yeah, he's moaning about time and he spends the first five minutes of the second half berating me for how long it is. I, mean... I think what we have to do, if you go over the hour, you have to do another 500 sit-ups. 
for the Royal Marsden. <laughs> Angela is oh, doing this. Oh, yeah, Angela go on, is doing that. this. Um, uh, a thousand, about a million sit-ups for the Royal Marsden. 3,000. 3,000 sit-ups. I gave her 50p towards it. <laughs> so listeners, go on the... Uh, on the uh, it's on my Twitter, Angela uh, Barnes. It's the pinned tweet. And it is... Yeah. Um, my, my friend's very poorly at the moment and the Royal Marsden have been looking after him. And so I'm just doing this thing. It's 3,000 sit-ups in March. So I'm doing basically doing... 100 sit-ups a day. And yeah. I still don't look like... You know, I thought I'd have a six-pack uh, yeah, by abs, now, John. You'd have a six-pack. Has it happened? But you've happened. got to keep doing them in April and May if you don't make your podcast shorter. That's the new rule. Yeah. But anyway, talking about this podcast Do... being too long. What brilliant... yeah. You could have done this in the last podcast, John. You could have done this in the last one that you well, led was... that was 40 minutes. But no, you've decided to make my one that is too long even bloody longer. Should we go back to the story? Yes, yeah, Spain. Take us back to Spain. Andrew. So the plan's finalised, what they're going to do. So now it's all about when they do it and how... They actually carry out the job. Yeah. Uh, so they select, the place they select for the body to, to wash up is a place called Huelva, uh, which is day. on the coast of southern Spain. And it's selected because they consulted with a naval hydrographer on okay. where the body's most likely to wash ashore with the winds and the tides and everything right. else. Um, and also they knew that in Huelva, in very the... Good city there was a german agent who was very active because obviously the body needs to wash up somewhere where there was a network of german spies right and this particular spy his name was adolf klaus which is what you want a spy to no, be called he's, isn't he's it? central casting nazi isn't he Absolutely. my name is adolf, adolf klaus, klaus. <laughs> I'm a Nazi. He was a member of the Abwehr, which is, as we said, the intelligence agency. Right. And he was the son of the German consul in Huelva. Mm-hmm. And he operated under the cover of being an agricultural technician. I'm but he bad. had literally everyone in that town in his pay. Like okay. all the, the harbour masters, local wow. politicians, farmers, okay. just loads of people were being paid to give him information. And also in Huelva, the, the British vice consul there was a man called Francis Hazeldon. And Montague knew of him and knew that he would be a helpful okay. person in the operation. So that's why they chose that place now originally they were thinking well you can't just have a body wash up and there's no crash like somebody would hear an air crash or right. see well, debris or something. Sea, i suppose well exactly what they decided in the end because they toyed with the idea of sort of smashing up a plane or letting flares off or whatever right. but in, in the end they decided there'd be no wreckage or explosion and that actually in wartime the germans aren't gonna look too hard they'd just be satisfied okay. that any debris sunk or drifted away or whatever i'm buying it i'm buying it they decided the best way to get the body to the waters where it had to be deposited was by a submarine. Wow. Okay, so there's a submarine called HMS Seraph. It was captained by a man called Bill Jewell. And Bill Jewell is just this hard nut submarine captain. Like submariners are hard and tough, right? It's okay. a, a bonkers it's a... life being a submariner. He was such a hard man that he broke two vertebrae in his neck during the war and just hadn't noticed. Um, and and conducted a whole war with a broken neck, right? Yeah. which was only discovered years later. The next thing to do is get permission from the Prime Minister and from General Eisenhower. So by this point, this body's been in the morgue since the 29th of January. Right? Yeah. 15th of April, John Bevan, who was the head of the London controlling section overseeing Operation Barclay, he goes to meet Churchill in the Cabinet War Offices, who is in bed wearing a dressing gown and smoking a cigar, which As is how you imagine. Yeah. He did most of his... Stuff from bed, didn't he? He, yeah, was in, yeah. he spent a lot of time in bed. He warned Churchill that there were some aspects that could go wrong. For example, it was quite likely that the Spaniards would just give the corpse back to Britain with the papers unread because the Spanish Navy were quite pro British. Okay. Different elements in Spain were different, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, had different sides, loyalties. Yeah. Churchill's response to that was in that case, we shall have to get the body back and give it another swim. See, I don't think that was a very good Churchill impression. <laughs> I know. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, Did you no, want to do that? I'll, 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 I'll hand that over to you. I'll never. In that case, we shall have to get the body back and give it another swim. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, no, wrong Churchill. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so Churchill gave his approval to the operation. He said, oh, yes, yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> we've gone giddy, John, have you noticed? And on the 17th of April, Eisenhower's approval was given. So we're going. Operation well, Mincemeat is go. Da, 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 so, da, 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 as soon as Eisenhower's given in his approval, they start moving, right? So that morning, Montague and Chomley, they go to the mortuary at St Pancras to prepare the corpse for his role. 
yep. in this. So they dress him in his Royal Marine battle dress. But they've got a little bit of a problem, John, with the feet. Oh, no, what? His feet are frozen oh, no. and it was impossible to get his boots on right, at that angle. And obviously they can't, they have to put the boots on him because his feet are rotten. So they, they, the Montague finds an electric heater, For melts all the his feet. feet. Oh God, this is, it's not as glamorous, is it, as James it's Bond really is, not. is it? And you by got... all accounts, this was pretty grim. I mean, he's been, you know, he's yeah. not been frozen. So he's been still decomposing, although it's slower. Yeah. And so now the corpse of poor old Glyndor Michael the man nobody gave a shit about is now dressed as Major Bill Martin. Yeah. And they placed the pocket litter on him and they attached the briefcase to his overcoat. Now, the question is, how do you get the corpse to the submarine? The submarine is in Scotland. Well, that's the right? wrong way for a start. It's off Scotland. It's the wrong way. So before this, Chumley, he has, with advice from this pathologist, remember old Bernard Spilsbury? Yeah. The pathologist. They've they commissioned Charles Fraser Smith of Q Branch, who is likely one of the people that Fleming based Q on. Right. They uh, commissioned him to devise a canister for transporting the body. Now, obviously, his body's got a long journey. Right? Yeah. It's got to get from London to Scotland, then Scotland to Spain on a submarine. So they've got to stop it decomposing on the submarine. So this canister they've designed is packed with dry ice, right? Wow. Which when sublimated, so when it goes from solid to gas without there being a liquid state, yep. it will fill the canister with carbon dioxide and drive out any oxygen yeah, so he won't you. decompose, right? So he's packed into this canister... Uh, with dry ice and it's sealed up and it's marked handle with care optical instruments right Ooh. and the cover for the canister for it going on the submarine and everything else is that it was uh, meteorolo- meteorological instruments being transported. well said you said they pronounced that quite Thanks, well <laughs> eventually so now they need to recruit a driver and they okay. do they recruit a, not any old driver he's a he's an mi5 chauffeur but he's also, he was a famous racing driver. His name was Jock Horsfall. And he'd been a champion racing driver before the war, right? Right. Won all these cups and things. And he had this 1937 Fordson van. Okay. Um, so they put, they put the canister in the back of that with Chumley and Montague also in the back with the canister. Up the Great North Road. Up the Great North Road, off to Scotland, right? Now... Not only is Jock Horsfall famous for being a racing driver, he's famous for being an incredibly short-sighted racing driver who oh, refuses great. to wear glasses. <laughs> so they've got this short-sighted, speedy driver. Yeah, and it needs to be quick. They need to get there quickly because the captain of the submarine has said they have to depart by midday. Okay. They've only got the go-ahead in the early hours of the morning. So he's belting up to Scotland. And by all accounts, the journey was pretty hairy. They nearly drove into a tram stop at one point. He was driving over, roundabouts. And of course, they've got their headlights masked as well because it's of course, blackout. Of blackout, yeah. Luckily, there wasn't much other traffic on the road. And then they get into Scotland. They get to the submarine. And what they've done is they've taken one of the torpedoes out of the torpedo reload rack on the submarine and they put him in the torpedo rack wow. in the canister, right? Um, now, on a submarine, there are more men than there are bunks to sleep in, right? So they do sort of hotbed system okay. where, you know, you have different shifts, but there's still not quite enough beds. So quite often the men sleep in the torpedo racks, Okay. And so these oh. men were sleeping next to this body without knowing that's what it was. Oh my God, okay. Although some of them had an idea. It was, it was a slightly body-sized canister. So they, you know, some of them were like, mm, really? So he's on his way now. It's the 17th of April and he's on his way. And he won't get to the waters where he's going to be deposited till late April, like okay, 29th, 1943. 30th. Yeah. On the 22nd of April, while he's on his journey, Montague and Charmley are like, our work is done. We've just got to see how yeah. it plays out now. They decide to have a farewell party for Major Bill Martin. And okay. they, that's that's the night they go to see the comedy show and they have a big party. They have a great night out. Oh, they have a brilliant time. 28th of April, the submarine Seraph is starting to approach Huelva. Yes. So Bill Jewell, he has the canister brought up on deck. Um, then he sends all his crew below, except for the officers, at which point he tells them what's in the canister. Because right? at this point, Bill Jewell's the only one who knows. But obviously, he can't haul up the canister and empty the body out by himself. Right. They open the container, and by all accounts, it's pretty grim. And also, what's happened is, while the, the dry ice has worked to a certain extent, where he's got pockets of air in his clothes, the oxygen hasn't escaped. So he has continued to rot a bit more. Oh, God, OK. So it's a pretty smelly, pretty grim job getting his body out of the canister and lowered into the water 
Um, but as they did it, Bill Jewell read Psalm 39, which oh, I thought okay. was quite a nice sort of, you know, they wanted to give him some dignity in what they were doing. They, they had a few issues before they actually got the body into the water because they were fishing boats around and stuff and they had to make sure they could Oh, yeah, it. of course. But eventually they did it. The next job was go back out to sea and sink the canister so it would never be found. So they went about 12 miles away, get the canister up, surface the submarine, push it into the water and the bloody thing floats. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So they're like, okay, well, what we'll do, we'll, we'll shoot it with machine guns and then it'll fill with water and it'll sink. So they riddled it with machine gun fire, but because of air trapped in it, it's still, still floating. Why don't they just take it back with them? Seems a bit of a, making things Well, I suppose if they got intercepted, if they got oh, torpedoed okay. or whatever, and it'd get found, you know, All anything right. that would make the Germans question what yeah. was happening. So what All they right. did in the end, they hauled it back onto the boat, filled it with plastic explosives. Right. <laughs> they put it out to sea and exploded it in the sea. And of course, this explosion would have been heard by people. But again, it's wartime. Right. Could have been the could have been a plane going down. It could have been a plane going down, and they thought any debris from it would be so shattered, people would just assume it was debris yeah. from a plane or whatever. And Bill Jewell didn't tell anyone that they'd blown it oh. up with plastic explosives until 1991. Wow! He sent a message to the Admiralty that simply said "mincemeat completed." Right. Very so straightforward. So Major Martin now is on his way, and sure enough, he washes up on the beach, John. At 9.30 a.m. on the 30th of April, 1943, where he's found by a local fisherman called Jose Antonio Rey Maria. Yeah, local boy. Good Spanish name, that is. Yes, it? yeah. Uh, and there was some local Spanish soldiers doing drills. So the fisherman ran to them and went, you'll never guess what I've just found. And they hauled the body onto a donkey, which was then led by a child into the town of Huelva. Blimey, most interesting thing to happen in Huelva for a bit. Right. The body was handed straight over to a naval judge. Now, the vice council, remember, this was uh, Francis Hazeldon, who Montague yeah. knew. He's waiting for this to happen, right? He's been prepared yeah, that this yeah. is going to happen. So he gets the call and he's officially informed and told that the Admiralty have the body in the briefcase. So he has to pretend to demand it and pretend to be really worried about this. Exactly. Now, th th this is where it gets really tricky, right? Because he has to look like he really wants the briefcase, but, but he but, doesn't. But if they go, oh, OK, then, all right, you can have it. No, no, I insist you don't look at the material. Which is exactly what happens. Right? Okay, the, the, the naval judge offers yeah. the briefcase straight to him. You're the vice council of Brit You're British. This is a British body because the, oh, the no, navy disaster. are quite pro-British. Yeah. So he says, oh, do you just want to take the briefcase then? So Francis Hazardon has to go, um, actually, no, I think it should go through the proper channels. Channels, yes. Um, yes, that's a diplomat. And actually got away with that. So it very nearly... All fell apart at the first wow. hurdle there. So the briefcase is now separated from the body and goes off to the naval authorities and starts making its way to Madrid, right, to the naval command. So they then do an autopsy on the body. Yeah. Uh, now, it turns out that old Spilsforth was wrong. Like, they do know how to do autopsies in Spain. They do have quite good doctors. But what Hazarden does is it's a really hot day and this is a stinking body. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. And he's there with the pathologist as they're doing the autopsy. And of course, it's a British, you know, he's the British vice consul. It's a British yeah, yeah. body. So he sort of says to the pathologist, so oh, do you want to wrap it up, lads, and we can all go for lunch? Because it's a bit hot and smelly in here, isn't it? And, you know, the Spanish, John, being all about a siesta. Yeah, they? they're not bothered. They're not bothered. They're not bothered. Um, so they just agreed, sign the death certificate, asphyxiation through immersion in the sea. We're done and here. They then released the body and he was able to have a burial. And it's quite moving this, I think, because he has this burial as Major Martin in the San Marco section of the Nuestra Senora Cemetery in Huelva, full military honours on the 2nd of May. And there's something poignant about that, isn't it? Something that Glinda yes. Michael himself would never have had a decent burial. He would have had a pauper's grave. He said to his parents he's going to be buried in a Spanish military funeral they would have been like well how the hell does he end up doing that the story is too fantastical to imagine but he had no family that cared no family no, that knew no. that his family weren't informed about any of this because they couldn't find them they didn't you know yeah, he was dead yeah. they didn't know anything about it um so remember adolf klaus the german Boo. spy he gets wind of this body and that there's a briefcase right he knows there's a briefcase and he's desperate to see what's inside it yeah. Um, especially as they'd pre-planned that Hazard and the vice consul would send these like desperate messages back to England yeah. about having to get the briefcase that they knew the Germans would intercept. So they have to look like they're desperately trying to get the briefcase, even though they're actually not. 
And Klaus has got these intercepted messages and he's like, right, there's something in that briefcase they don't want us to see. We want to yeah. see it. The Spanish Navy have retained the briefcase, but they're more sympathetic to the Allies, like we said. So yeah. it's the one branch of the military or anything really in Huelva where Klaus hasn't got that covered. So the briefcase gets sent to Madrid. Um, the contents were photographed, including ah. by German agents, but they were too scared to open the letters, John, because they were sealed oh, right, no. with a wax seal. So it's like, if you open, they're oh, going to no. know... Yeah. They've been open. So the most senior German agent in Spain was a man called Karl Erich Kulenthal. Now, he had a secret, and his secret was that his grandmother was Jewish. Ah. So he had a real vested interest in telling the Nazis whatever they wanted to hear. Oh. So Hitler really trusted him. And he would write these amazing florid accounts of things. He would embellish things. He would... Right. So he was an ideal person to get this information because he wasn't going to question anything. He wanted it to be right. He, he wanted yeah, it yeah. to be good intelligence so much that he was willing to overlook certain things like uh, there wasn't a crash or yeah. things like that. So the Spanish authorities, they managed to find a way in the end in Madrid to get the letters out of the envelopes without breaking the seal. Okay. Because the gum on the envelopes had dissolved. In the water. And so they were able to get like a probe in between the bits of the envelope, roll the letter around the probe and pull it out of the hole. Okay. I won't try and understand that. Let's just say they didn't notice that the eyelash fell out of the letter ah, as well. Okay, that's mm. good. So they dried the letters, photographed them, and then they re-soaked them in salt water for 24 hours and then put them back in the envelopes and dried them. Yeah. And this information did make it to the Germans. On the 8th of May, Kulenthal personally takes the documents to Berlin. So it's worked like a treat. It's worked it like a treat. It has worked like a charm. And so on the 11th of May, the briefcase, complete with all the documents and everything, is returned to Heseldon and then returned to London by diplomatic bags. So as far as the Germans were aware... The British think they haven't seen it, which is right. really important, right? Because yes. if the Brit if they think the British know that they know, yeah, yeah, the British yeah. are going to change their plans, right? Yeah. So as far as the Germans are aware, the Allies have got no idea that they've got this information. But what the British don't know yet, until they get the bag, is whether the Germans have got it. They know the Spanish have read it because they know the letters have been opened. Yes. But they don't know until they intercept some signals traffic later on that the Germans... It has been passed from the Spanish to the Germans. That was my dad's job, intercepting oh, the German really? intelligence. Yeah, he was... Uh, he was, uh, was it Bletchley? To... No, it wasn't a Bletchley, but he listened to the uh, uh, Morse code and wrote them all down. That was his ah, job. So maybe amazing. this came across my dad's desk. Who knows? May well have done. May well yeah. have done. Just in case the Germans did any more digging to find out more about Major Martin, they put his death in the published list of British casualties in the Times on the 4th of June. Oh, nice um, touch. Nice touch. They would have yeah. looked at the Times. Oh, look, there he is. See, told you. Yeah. Told you it's true. It's in the Times. It must be true. There were some doubts in German yeah. quarters. Like, where's the crash site? Where are the other yeah. bodies? Presumably yeah. wasn't on his own in this plane. But these reports from Kulenthal are very persuasive because he, yeah. he wants them to believe him. And Hitler really likes him. And Hitler, at this point, he needs some good news, right? So he's predisposed to receiving it. Yeah. yeah, the war is really going against the Germans. They've lost yeah. North Africa. They've lost he, Stalingrad. They've lost Stalingrad. He needs some good news. Yeah. And also, it really was useful whose desks this information came across, that it came across Kulenstahl's desk. Also, that in Germany, in Berlin, the people there assessing the intelligence, one of them was a man called von Werner, who, again, Hitler was a big fan of his, but he was right. actually, he was um, a German monarchist and he hated the Nazis and the Bolsheviks, but he really hated the Nazis, although he was working for them. And so he would routinely inflate what the Allies were doing. Okay, okay. So he was keen also to validate it for Hitler. Yeah. By the end of June, sure enough, German troop strength on Sardinia, because they fell for the sardines joke, John. Oh, it's a good see, cause power of satire. They say you can't change anything with jokes, but... But the hey, course of can. World War II was changed with a sardine pun. So they start reinforcing troops on Sardinia and reinforcing troops in Greece and the Balkans. Wow. It's worked. So it works, right? a treat, yeah. And on 9th of July, 1943, the Allies invade Sicily and Operation Husky. And everyone's going, ah, oh, it's a decoy, it's a decoy. The Hitler's going, no, no, we knew we were going to, they're pretending to invade Sicily. And for quite a considerable time after that initial invasion, Hitler was still convinced that the attack on the Balkans was imminent. He right, still kept reinforcements. He still, he was convinced kept it was coming. In Greece. You would think that invading Sicily was like a slightly dodgy choice, wouldn't it? With a sort of, we have, yeah, we have some uh, Sicilians back in New York and we try not to upset those guys. <laughs> yeah, they can be a little... They can, maybe they've all got the... guns of their own, you know. Have you seen The Godfather? <laughs> so um, the invasion of Sicily is a success because it's yeah. undefended. 
that's it. By the time the German high command realised what's happened, it's too, too late, late to make a difference. Then they're onto the mainland from Sicily. They hop off onto the toe of Italy. Yeah. The only thing I'll say about all this, I just very interesting. It's very yeah. good podcast. But I would say that whenever there's a story like this, and they say, and it's turned the entire history of the war, <laughs> I would is, say the invasion yeah. of Italy, you know, was not the most important thing in the war. Stalingrad, D Day. You know, the Battle for the Pacific, but the invasion of Sicily was important. But yeah, if it had, but butterfly if... effect, job. We don't know, know, do we? I, we don't, we know, don't, we don't know. know. We don't know. And, and the other thing is, as well, you know, we don't know for sure that it was Operation Mincemeat that sealed the deal. There were other operations going on. You know, there was the whole of Operation Barclay had a numerous ways of trying to convince yeah. the Germans of the same thing. So it might be that Mincemeat just corroborated what they were already yeah, thinking. Sure. Well, that's clever. But it's an interesting story, and it's I, a great and I story. just think that this chap in life could never have known what in death he was going to achieve. His greatest achievement was as a corpse, which is not a great... You know. It's not. And you and Montague wrote something to that effect in his diaries, which was a little bit upsetting, you know, that this right. man was basically nothing in life but a hero in death. And Montague wrote a memoir about it, didn't he? He did. The Man Who Never Was. They made a film. Made a film of it and in which Montague made a cameo as an air vice marshal. And there's a lovely picture in the book of a still from the film. And there's Clifton Webb, who's playing Ewan Montague, sat opposite Ewan Montague. So The Man Who Never Was was quite a famous film in the 50s. Mm. But it was only quite recently, I think, that it came out that it was Glyndia Michael. I think that came out in the 90s or something, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah. They kept his identity secret for a long time. I suppose in case he might have still had sisters and things yeah. alive. I don't know if they were protected. I don't know. I think we should dedicate this podcast to Glyndia Michael. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Yeah. Sorry your life was so shit. Shit. But you made a difference to World War Two. You turned the tide of World War Two. Indeed. On your own. Indeed. We'll and do that. do read the Operation Mincemeat book. It's yeah. a, I mean, we couldn't. I know this was a long podcast, John. I didn't notice it was long. Actually. Did I <laughs> Did I mention that you're... I'm giving John the finger right now, everyone. Um, ben McIntyre writes really accessibly about these sort of... Yeah. So his book, The Spy and the Traitor, is really good. Uh, Agent Zigzag, he wrote about Eddie, what's his name? And uh, Agent Sonia is his latest, which I haven't read yet. Wow. But yeah, wow. really good. Well, thank you, Ben McIntyre. Thank you, Glinda and Michael. Thank you, Angela Barnes, for informing me about Operation Mincemeat and the Man Who Never Was. Thank you, Spike, for getting Angela's four-hour monologue down to the <laughs> hour that will be going out. We'll be back next week with another thrilling instalment of We Are History Pod. Tell us if you're enjoying them on Twitter. If you're not enjoying them, don't say anything. And um, make sure you give us five stars and a good review on iTunes because that helps our really algorithms. Help. Yes, whatever they may be. Bye. Bye. Bye.